Thank the praise team. They always do a great job every week. We appreciate them very much. Yeah. Uh, you ever find yourself in a bad spot? You're in a painful situation. You're in an unpleasant position. It's not what you wanted. It's not what you planned. But you're thinking, how did I get here? Why am I here? And how am I going to respond to this? What, you, you try to make the best of it, right? I mean, maybe it's God has you there for a reason. Maybe God wants to use you in that situation for his purposes. I don't know, but I'm going to try and make the best of it. Especially, how can God use this and use me to help other people? So grab your Bible, whether you've got a book on your lap or an app on your phone. We're going back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. It's going to be on the screens as well. We're going to pick up in verse 16 where we left off last week. We're going to be finishing out this chapter as we finish out our series today. We left Paul and Silas on their missionary journey in the city of Philippi. And so here's what Luke writes in Acts 16, 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, this is just a girl who is in bondage to both men and demons. Not some sort of horror movie kind of possession with a scarred-up face and a rotating head. This is somebody you would probably never guess had any kind of demonic presence. In fact, a lot of people probably thought she had some sort of a gift, some sort of even a gift from God to do this. And the thing is, that's exactly what she did not have because that's the kind of stuff God forbids. All that fortune-telling kind of stuff, the paranormal, psychic, astrology, uh, crystal ball kind of stuff. That is not from God. People who get wrapped up in all that numerology, tarot card kind of uh, Ouija board stuff, that's the kind of stuff we're supposed to stay away from. And, and people sometimes think that they have a gift from God, but they don't realize that either they're deluding themselves into thinking that, or they're actually dealing with the demonic. Now, a lot of those people that you might go to for those things, they're just con artists, but some people are dealing with some legitimate stuff going on here. But thing is, demons don't know the future. So fortune telling is not legit. Only God knows the future. I think what demons may be able to do, perhaps, is to manipulate events to try and make some of those predictions come true. But listen, if that demon and that girl really could tell the future, then he would have kept far away from Paul because he's about ready to get cast out here. And we don't know how this girl got this demon. You might think, what, did she invite this demon into her life? We don't know. I mean, it's possible. That's why we really want to make sure we, we warn our kids not to get messed up in all that occultic, paranormal kind of stuff. It's not anything to play around with or experiment in. We don't know how or why she got it, but we do know she's being exploited in order to make a lot of money off of this so-called gift. Because people back then are just like people today. People want to pay a lot of money to get a peek into the future. So we go back to verses 17 and 18. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved, which was actually true. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, she was actually telling people to listen to Paul in order to get saved. And that's good, right? No, Paul is annoyed by that. Why do you think? Because it's a demon saying those things. And you do not want to 
a demon being the spokesperson for God or the gospel, right? Because demons are liars. And so you, you don't know what to trust when it comes out of their mouths, right? They could be telling the truth. They could be telling a lie. That's the way fortune tellers are. They, they're very tricky that way because sometimes they'll tell you things that are true. They'll even quote scripture. And in the next breath, they'll lie to you or they'll tell you something that's false. So it's important that you're able to trust the messenger who's bringing you the message, right? To, if somebody's going to tell you how to be saved, you want to be sure that you can trust what they have to say. Not that, you know, anybody who, who teaches the gospel is perfect. We're not. But at least the walk ought to match the talk. And, and we got to make sure that we get the message right. So just because somebody's telling you about Jesus doesn't mean they're telling you the truth because a lot of people say, yeah, Jesus is cool, Christianity is okay, but they're just saying, yeah, that's just one of the ways to get saved. I mean, other ways are fine too. No, here's what Acts 4.12 says. Salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. So do we really believe that Jesus is the way? Now what you're missing here in the English text you can see more clearly in the Greek text. The girl is saying, and really it's the demon saying, they're telling you the way to be saved. It doesn't actually say the word the. It just says they're telling you a way to be saved, which is part of the trickery of, uh, of the occult. False religion is saying, look, Christianity is a way to be saved, but there are many other ways as too. No, Jesus says, I am the way. There is no other way. Why? Because only he is qualified to be the one to die in our place for our sins. The only one to rise from the dead in order to offer us life forever. So he's it. But how is anybody going to know that unless somebody tells them? That's what Paul will later write in Romans chapter 10. How can they believe in him if they haven't heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? And that's why you're here. Somebody cared enough to tell you or invite you to come and learn the truth of salvation. God's good news through Jesus Christ. And that's why our, our big idea is everyone needs somebody to tell him or her how to be saved. Isn't that true? Everyone needs someone to tell them how to be saved. Now, Paul is going to shut the demon up by performing an exorcism. And again, this isn't the Hollywood style where, uh, you know, there's all these special effects and there's this big ceremony. He simply speaks words of a command to say, in the name of Jesus, leave that girl. Why is that powerful? Because the name of Jesus is is supernatural. There's something about that name, which is why so many people, I think, use it as a profanity they don't say other people's name. They use the name of Jesus. They treat it very carelessly and flippantly because it is so powerful and supernatural. And they really don't understand what they're messing around with when they use Jesus' name like that. Let's head back to verse 19. It says, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. I mean, how many people do that? How many people put their own concerns ahead of a child's concern. I mean, they, they care more about making money than the welfare of that little girl. How many people will sell their souls for more money like that? I mean, that, that's, that's a dangerous thing, obviously. And it's nothing new. And they see their profits going down the drain because the demon is gone. 
So we head back to verse 21. It says, When the owners of the slave girl realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. You know, I, I think people are willing to put up with us as Christians as long as we don't interfere with their pleasure or power or profits. But as soon as we get involved in that way, they're going to come after us. They're going to fight us. Isn't that right? So, so this, the, the, these people, these slave owners made a big ruckus and they drag Paul and Silas before the authorities and they, they make all these accusations, trump up these charges against them, claiming that, hey, these guys are not only Jewish, which, you know, the Romans and Greeks had a problem with the Jewish people to begin with, but they are, they're actually teaching this new religion, which is not authorized by the Roman government. That sounds familiar, right? This religion has not been approved by the government. And so they, they cause an uproar. Or at least they claim that they're causing an uproar. Wow, I would love to be accused of causing an uproar in a city like that, right? Because we're, we're teaching the message of Jesus and people are being influenced and affected by that. But then a real uproar breaks out. Man. Um, goes on in verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So here they are, they're, they're, they haven't been put on a proper trial. The authorities have been pressured by the crowd and they beat them. And so here they are, they're severely beaten, bleeding, lacerated, and they're thrown into the worst part of the prison, like the maximum security area, the dark dungeon where there's not a lot of of air down there and they're shackled they're locked into stocks forced to sit or lie on the floor lie on their back or even lie on their faces and you can imagine the pain that the, the, they've been beaten severely the throbbing pain the discomfort and so in verse 25 here's their response about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them I mean what a great verse. Wouldn't you love to be able to, to have that same kind of attitude? To have such pain and so many problems and yet you're able to sing to God through all of that. Instead of groaning, instead of complaining, they're filling that dungeon with songs of praise. And I think there's just something about singing. God has wired us in such a way that we're able to communicate at a different level in song than we can in spoken words. And I think it's easy to sing when things are going good, right? Not, not too hard to sing right now. But to be able to sing, praise God when things are going bad. I want to be one of those people to say, Lord, I'm going to sing praise to you if they release me, but I'm still going to sing praise to you if I have to stay here. This isn't what I want. This wasn't my plan. But God, I'm going to make the best of it. I believe that I'm here for a reason. And because of that, God can give you songs in the night. And all the other prisoners are listening. They've got their attention. They never heard anything like this in prison before. God had them there for a reason. I don't believe God necessarily put them there. But once they were there, he used them. Even though they were chained up, their spirits were free. 
And when we share our faith with people, look, you don't have to put on a show and act like your life is all together and perfect. Instead, we show people that we have a God who is with us in our problems, who is still with us in our pain. And so we go on in verse 26. Here's what happens next. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. So yeah, this is the original jailhouse rock, guys. This is where... God frees him again. He's already done this in Acts 5. He freed uh, the, the apostles using an angel. In Acts 12 with Peter, frees him with an angel. Here, he uses an earthquake to shake the foundations, to tear the doors off their hinges, and to make the chains drop loose. Verses 27 and 28. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword. He's about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Wow. Now, this Roman jailer is ready to commit an honor suicide because of the disgrace of letting the, the prisoners escape on his watch. In fact, if any of the prisoners had been accused of a capital crime, then he could be put to death in their place, executed for letting them escape. So he's ready to end it all. But that's not God's plan. Now see, all, all the prisoners could have escaped. For, for some reason they don't. I don't know if there wasn't enough time or they're just so shocked they're, they're frozen in place. Paul and Silas could have made for the hills. But that's not why they were there. God had them there to use them to share the message of Christ with this jailer. Sometimes God allows us to get into places and situations where we don't want to be there, we didn't plan to be there, but what are we going to do about it? We make the best of it and see how God can use us. Have you ever been in in a place like that? Like you're at a hospital. Like, man, I don't want to be here. I don't believe God put you there. But how can he use you while you're there? Maybe you're there so that you can share your faith with some of the patient or some nurse or some doctor. Maybe you're in rehab, and it's not because God gave you an addiction, but he can still use it because you can share your faith with other people. Free them from their addictions through faith in Christ. Maybe on the job you get transferred to some other department and you're around people you do not want to be around. God, why am I here? I don't know, but can God use you to share your faith with those people? Sometimes it's the people who seem least likely to care, they're the ones most willing to listen. Because they got stuff going on in their lives you don't even know anything about. They're a mess. And they, they, they need what you have. You know, maybe you're at school, you're on a team. And, you know, you're, you're around other students who are just, you know, they're a mess. And you don't want to be around those guys at all. But if you're there, how can you make the best of it? How can God use you to influence them? Instead of being influenced by them, you be the influencer. Look, you look around at the the negative circumstances you're in and you see it as an opportunity to share Christ. You say, look, I'm I'm not gonna spend my time here moaning and complaining. I'm, I'm just gonna keep on being the one singing at midnight. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have that song of praise in the midst of this bad situation. I'm gonna shine that light in the darkness. I'm gonna make the best of it for the sake of Jesus. Let's go back. Verses 19, or 29 and 30. The jailer called for the lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, here it is, 
Key question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is the, answer, the question that every single one of us needs to be able to answer or else we're going to remain lost and under God's condemnation and separated from him forever in hell. That's just the truth. There really is something to be saved from and you sense that. You know that even this Roman jailer comes from a pagan background and, and idolatry sense that he had done wrong against this deity. And he didn't know what to do about it because nobody had ever told him before. But he's going to make the best of this situation. I can either kill myself or I can humble myself and say, what do I do? I want what you've got. You guys who are beat up and singing songs in the middle of the night, I want what you've got. And I want you to understand Christianity doesn't just offer you a better way of life with better morals, this path to personal fulfillment and psychological enlightenment. This isn't just another crutch for you to lean on and, and help you to deal with your problems. It's not some other philosophical system. It's so much more than that. This is the only thing that can answer the most basic question of all. How do I get right with God? How do I go to heaven? There is no other way. It's only through Christ. Because only he can offer forgiveness for what you've done. There is a judgment day coming. And no other way, no other religion, no other philosophy has an answer to what do I do? All they say is just try this, try that, do more. There's nothing about forgiveness. Only Jesus can offer that. Have you answered the question for yourself, who's going to save my soul? Can I really save myself? Or do I need a savior? Chances are you don't have people falling down at your feet right now saying, tell me how to be saved. How, how do I get right with God? They may not be doing that, but you've got to look beyond the exteriors and the facades people put on and see that that's what they need to know. And unless you tell them, they may never know. And I hope you're living in such a way that they at least notice there's something different about you and they think, what do they got that I don't got? What makes them so different? Whatever it is, I want it. And whenever they might go through a tragedy themselves or some sort of crisis, they may get to the point where they think, well, either I'm going I'm to kill myself or I'm going to humble myself and ask, what do I do? And you'll be ready with that answer. What must I do to be saved? Let's go on to verses 31 to 34. Here's the answer. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with what? With joy. Because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. There's the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now, is that all there is? Is that all we're supposed to say? Because truthfully, if you look at different situations where that question is asked, what must I do? You get some different answers. And I don't think it's God's fault that he's trying to be confusing. I think you have to look at who's speaking, who they're speaking to, 
what their son, the understanding of the people are. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And there's a crowd of thousands of Jewish believers that are hearing about Jesus for the first time. Peter and the apostles are telling them the good news and they are so convicted by that. They say, brothers, what do we do? There's the question. Peter does not say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Why? Because they already believe. They're already convicted. He tells them, you've got to act on your belief. You need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You meet people where they are and you take them to the next step. That's the principle. Even Paul himself in Acts 22, when he's recounting how he was saved, he said, I was, I was going to persecute Christians. I was on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to me in a vision, struck me down. I said, Lord, what should I do? There's the question. And Jesus says, go into the city and I'll tell you what you should do. And he has to wait three days. And while he's waiting, he's praying, he's fasting. And then the Lord sends Ananias to him. Here's what Ananias tells him in Acts 22, 16. Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, why didn't he say, believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. That's it. Because he obviously already believed. That's why he said, Lord, what do I do? Why didn't he tell him, repent? Because he already had, right? I mean, he's been fasting for three days. So he needs to be told, you need to be baptized right here and now. You meet people where they are. For the jailer, he's at ground zero. He doesn't know anything about God or Jesus. So the very first step for him is, you've got to believe in the Lord Jesus. But that's where some people stop quoting the scripture. They need to go on. What did he do next? Immediately. He starts washing their feet. This jailer is humbly washing the feet of his prisoners. That's a sign of repentance in my book. And that moment in the middle of the night baptizes him and his whole family. Now, some people will use that household baptism to justify baptizing babies, sprinkling babies, saying, well, see right there, the whole family got baptized, so we should baptize little kids. No, it, it, it doesn't say anything about babies or small children. In fact, it says everybody in the household were able to hear it and believe it. You've got to make it your own decision. Your parents cannot make that decision for you. You have to decide to give your life to Christ. And look, your life may not be what you wanted it to be. Your life isn't perfect. It's not what you planned. So how do you make the best of it? You turn your life over to Jesus right now. You can't change your past. But you can redeem your future and you can make the rest of your life the best of your life beginning right now. So if that's where you are and you're ready to make your own decision to trust Jesus, maybe your step one for you is you've got to believe in Jesus. Maybe you've done that. It's just been a head faith. Now you, you need to repent. If you've done that but you've never been baptized, you've never been immersed, that's what I'm telling you to do today. Whatever your next step is, do it now. Text your name to 734-304-7248 or email us at nextsouthpointccc.com. That works whether you're online or you're here in, in the, the building. Online, you can also click the link. You can um, meet with somebody out in the lobby at the point afterward because we want to help you. Whatever, if we just got to answer some questions that you've got. If you need somebody to pray with you, if you're ready to be baptized right here on the spot immediately, just like the jailer, don't wait another day. Middle of the night, let's go. We've got warm water, we've got towels, robes, everything you need to start that new life in Christ. Everyone needs someone to tell him or her how to be saved. You've heard it right now. What are you going to do about it? 
And who are you going to tell? Who's going to send you? Who are you going to go to? Who do you know that needs to hear this good news? You say, well, I don't know how to tell them. Sure you do. I just told you. So you can tell somebody else. You tell them God loves them. He sent his son to die for their sins, to rise from the dead. And he gives us three things to do. And there are three things that we will receive. He tells us to believe, repent, and be baptized. And you will receive forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. Those are the basics. That's, that's all you really need to know to lead somebody to faith in Christ. That's not all the questions they have, but that's the most important question they have. And when you lead somebody to faith, you be the one to baptize them. You don't have to bring them to a church building. Get them to the nearest body of water, whatever it is. Bathtub, swimming pool, the river, the lake, I don't care. Bring them here. But you be the one to baptize. There's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to bring them to a pastor to get baptized. And there's nothing that says you've got to wait for a special day and make it a, a public demonstration, an outward sign of an inward grace. Scripture never talks about it in that way at all. It's integral to becoming a Christian. It's part of receiving Christ. It's the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptizing them. That's how we do it. And it's not your work. It's God's work in you. I've got to tell you, there are a lot more jailers out there who need what you've got, who need to hear the good news of Jesus. And our mission is to go to them and share it. Somebody did that for you. And now it's your turn to pay it forward and tell someone else. Because I got, I got to let you know, either you are a missionary or you are a mission field. All right, let's see how the story ends. Let's go back to verses 35 through 37. Believe it or not, Paul and Silas, in good conscience, returned to their prison cell. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, well, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? Don't think so. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. <laughs> I, love, I love that. I mean, Paul is standing up for his legal rights, which we ought to take a lesson from that. We don't let the government or the authorities intimidate us, say you can't practice your faith, you can't gather, you can't share your faith with other people. We stand up for our rights because Paul's, if Paul had given in, it might have kept the church under suspicion. There are a bunch of lawbreakers there. They're bad people. Might have opened up the church to persecution. So stand up for your rights here. So, verses 38 through 40, here's how it plays out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Well, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them and then they left. <laughs> so, I mean, they leave behind a great foundation of a church in Philippi. In fact, this is such a good church that they, they support Paul on his missionary journeys over and over. And when he writes a letter to them, Philippians, he has nothing but good things to say about them. So that's where we're gonna leave Paul and Silas for the next year until we come back to Acts chapter 17 next year, all right? But next week, we're beginning a new series called True Grit because that's one of those qualities in life that people, you know, they, they, they rise above those, those difficulties and, and 
hard times and they become successful. It's that true grit quality that so many of us lack. So what is it? How do we develop it? How do we train others in it? So we're going to look at Paul. He's in prison again at the end of his life, writing this letter called 2 Timothy that, again, is not full of complaining and moaning. It's full of true grit. So I hope you'll be back for that and bring others with you. So this concludes our series, Going Mobile. And it also concludes our month of focusing on our missions, right? We have, all month we've been highlighting the missions that we support as a church and asking you to give to support those missions. If you're a guest here, we, we never want to ask you to give anything. But if this is your church home, then we support six missions. And what we give during this week, starting last Monday through today, is what they will receive for the entire year. So we want you to know what you're giving toward. Every dollar you give from last Monday through today goes to these missions. Now, starting tomorrow, what you give goes to South Point. But this is your final day. None, none of what you give today will go here. It will go to these three categories of missions. First is church planting, starting new churches in new places to reach new people. We support New Churches of Christ Evangelism in Michigan and Impact Canada. The second category of missions is compassion outreach, which is meeting physical material needs with the hope of directing people to Jesus. We support International Disaster Emergency Service, which is involved all over the world in disaster response, hunger relief, medical care, development, and evangelism, as well as supporting Go Impact 360, which meets the physical, mental, and spiritual needs of people in Downriver and Detroit and Romania. The third category of missions is global evangelism which is everything we do to reach out and send ministers and missionaries. Uh, we support His House, which is a campus ministry on 12 university uh, and college campuses around the state, as well as Brad and Tammy Harvey, who are with uh, Heart for Central Africa, primarily translating the scriptures into the language of a people group in Tanzania of a million people who are nearly all Muslims. We also have involved in their Christian college scholarships for South Point folks who want to go off to, to study for ministry or other Christian work and special appeals when there are urgent immediate needs. For example, we've received a request to help start a new Christian church in the city of Seattle, Washington, a very difficult place to start a church. But Dave and Brenda Atkin are going there to do it, working along with Christian Evangelizing Association. I actually went to school with David. He's been a missionary in many places, including China. Most recently, he was a minister at a sister church in Livonia. And so we're going to be sending some funds to help them start that church. Another request came from the Harveys in Africa for medical assistance for a family there. Monica is a lady who worked with the Harveys for a long time, got married to Dumas. They now have three children and Dumas has kidney failure and has to have dialysis three times a week and is hoping to get a kidney transplant from his brother, but really no funds to do that. So the Harveys are trying to collect funds and we're going to send some funds to help Dumas get that kidney transplant. So everything that you give through today, whether online or on site, is going to help those things. And last year we gave, I think, $47,000, so far above what we normally do, and I hope you will be just as generous today. If you've already given online, thank you for your generosity, but maybe God is calling you to give a little bit more or you haven't given anything yet, then uh, do so today in the boxes or online. Uh, if you're like Penny and me, we give once a month, and so we have to divide up our giving into weeks <laughs> this time and give even more than we usually do. And maybe you'll, you'll need to do that as well. But you and I have an opportunity to see so much good done in the lives of so many people. 
So let's pray about that. Father, I want to thank you for sending your son to save us, for sending someone to tell us, to tell me the good news of Jesus. Lord, we're praying for the spread of your gospel to all people. And I want to thank you for these people and for their willingness to be used by you and to make a difference and make disciples uh, right here and around the world. And Lord, we, we're, we want to partner with you in the greatest work there is and the greatest cause of all. Lord, we know that uh, what we bring to you, you're going to multiply. You're going to meet a lot of needs. And uh, I pray that you would bless the work of all these missions. Bless them with resources. Bless them with uh, opportunities and uh, servants to, to carry out your work, God. You, you have blessed us to be a blessing to others and to take as many people to heaven with us as we can. So we pray all that in your son's name.